If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Malachi, the prophecy of Malachi through the Lord to his people, the people of Israel. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 15 will be our text this morning, and the sermon title is The Fraudulent Testing of God. This is where the people of Israel defraud the Lord And then they test their faithful God. The Lord invites them to test him, but rather he's inviting them to trust his faithfulness. And the people instead are testing his patience. As we've worked through Malachi's prophecy, I think what we've seen time and again is that the Lord brings a charge to and against his people that has to do with their actions. But those actions always stem from a heart of impurity. And the Lord is always driving back to the heart. And and so when we think about this text as it considers the tithes and offerings of Israel, as we think about the tithes and offerings that we give, but also the life that we live as a sacrifice of worship to the Lord, we know that these things always must drive back to the heart. Driving to the heart, though, we must remember that people act and we speak from the overflow of our hearts. So so we always want to drive to the heart, but we also must remember that it's from the heart that we live. So selfish actions, selfish deeds are indicative of a selfish heart. And so there's important issues at stake as we consider this text about giving and about defrauding the Lord they're really eternal ramifications because if our lives are given to the Lord, we will give ourselves as a pleasing and holy sacrifice to him. So these things are certainly worth our attention and our consideration today. So again, the text is Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. And I invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we read our text this morning, and then we'll ask the Lord's help and blessing as we study his word today. Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 8, this is the inspired and inerrant word of the living God. It says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape 
May the Lord write his word upon our hearts, and may he bless it and be glorified by its reading. You may be seated. Now, would you join me in a word of prayer? Our great God, you are in the heavens and you do as you please, as your word tells us. You are high and exalted, the God who always was, who is now, and who always will be. You are Yahweh, the great I Am, the all-sufficient one, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Lord, who are we that you would be mindful of us, that you would provide for us, that you would be faithful to us? Lord, we must realize that we are nothing. You're faithful because you are always faithful to your promises. You are good to us, not because of any merits of our own, but because of the merits of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you provide for us physically in this life. But that provision pales in comparison to the great provision that you have made for us in eternity through the precious blood of Christ spilled at Calvary's cross. Lord, such a sacrifice is worthy of all devotion. It's worthy of all praise and all striving that we can bring and give. Lord, as we come to your word and you instruct us about living lives as sacrifices unto you, pray that we would ever and always keep our eyes fixed upon Christ, our great prize, our great example, our great Savior. Lord, I pray that your spirit would come and quicken our hearts and our minds to be able to hear and receive and apply your word. For this time that, that we take to study your word will be nothing but a failure if it's not for your spirit coming and working in us and through us and through the truth of your word. Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth? Would you give us humble hearts that are so eager and so ready to receive the truth and apply it in our lives? Lord, would you help us to rightly and genuinely examine our lives in light of your truth? Lord, help us not to be hearers only of the word, but also doers of the word. And may those actions flow from the depths of our hearts. Lord, we ask for your help in this time. We ask for your blessing in this time. But above all, we ask that this time would bring honor and glory to you. Lord, may we see Christ magnified and exalted. And may we give ourselves to his service. Lord, may we be slaves of Christ. 
pray that you would help us now. And pray that you would be glorified through the rest of our worship today. And ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So it's been a, a few weeks since we've been in the book of Malachi. And, and as we think about Malachi, as we study this prophecy, we have the benefit uh, of seeing the Lord's word as a whole. But we also have the benefit of only really taking this instruction of the Lord bit by bit and part by part. We have the opportunity and the ability to, to take a section of the Lord's instruction and, and focus in on it and allow the Lord to work in our hearts in it. And then we, we go home and we're able to examine ourselves and ask the Lord to apply his word in our lives. But think about Israel in this day. This prophecy likely came to them just in one fell swoop. And so thinking about that, there's a weight to, to the adding week by week study that we're doing through just a few verses each week. For, for they're not hearing these verses as the first time they've heard this context in a couple weeks. But rather, this was likely read to them or, or spoken to them all in one sitting. So I want to think about that and kind of reset the context a little bit so we can kind of feel some of that weight. We began in, in studying and seeing the faithful love of God. He began by telling the people that I have loved you and I have called you and I have set you apart to be mine. The Lord then instructed the people how they are to fearfully and reverently worship his name. He will accept no other worship other than what he has prescribed in scripture. In chapter 2, the Lord kind of contrasted the, the fruitful ministry of Levi and, and the priesthood versus the fruitless ministry of the current priesthood of Israel. He showed them how they were failing, how they were missing the mark, and, and called them to be fruitful because they were obeying and carrying out their duties in a way that honored him. We also saw the fickleness, the deceit, of the people in their relationships to one another. They, they, were, they were against each other. They were deceiving one another and acting, acting slanderously against one another. Then kind of in the end of chapter 2, in the beginning part of chapter 3, kind of to bring us to today's section, we've seen the fateful judgment of God and the fixed promises of God where the Lord promises judgment for sinners. He promises that judgment will come to those who remain in their sin and choose not to repent. But he also says, For I, the Lord, do not change, and therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Return to me, and I will return to you. So how do we summarize up to this point? I think we could say a few things. The Lord has been clear in his rebuke. The, the Lord has reminded of his great faithfulness, and the Lord, Lord has been very stern in his warning to his people, reminding them of the judgment that is to come if they do not repent. So put yourselves again in the position of these Jews. You know, perhaps at this point there would be some fear. Perhaps there would be some some trembling, some trepidation because you've heard of all this judgment 
of the holy God who you know to be the holy one. Perhaps, on the other hand, there's also some stubbornness, some hardness of heart that remains among the people. And really, we don't have to wonder about that second point because the text before us shows us that they remained hard in their hearts. They remained stubborn and arrogant and questioned the Lord and pushed back against God Almighty. And we see that, and we have to be pressed toward humility. We have to be pressed toward understanding the weightiness of what the Lord has spoken. But then we come to this text, and and so interestingly, I think so beautifully, the Lord lays out his faithfulness. The Lord promises to be a provider to his people. The Lord comes to his people and says, test me. Do what I tell you and see if I will not keep my word. Now we know we are not to test the Lord. Jesus himself said that you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. But the Lord again is is telling them, trust me. See if I will not be faithful. Do what I call you to do and watch how I might act as the great God who loves my people. What greater kindness, what greater faithfulness has the Lord shown us, his people, than to redeem us in and through Christ? What more must he do for us to be faithful to and to trust him? That's the question, but then in that last section that we read, what we see is the people conclude that their service to Christ, their service to the Lord is vanity. They say it's worthless. It amounts to and it means nothing because the wicked, they say, are prospering. But surely we know that Christ is worthy of all devotion. He's worthy of all worship. He's worthy of all sacrifice and all honor and all praise. Dear Saint, you have but one life to live. And it's only what you give in service to the Lord that is of any eternal value. You have one life, and only what's done for Christ will last. So we kind of link this Old Testament idea. Again, you remember that. That's kind of what we do with, with Old Testament. We have to link it into Christ to see how it points to Christ and how it's fulfilled in Christ, and we could say surely that Christ is the great example of faithful giving and faithful sacrifice, for he gave of himself perfectly and faithfully. He gave his life upon the cross to earn your forgiveness of sin. And so to to kind of focus us in on, on a single point here, a single goal that we will try to reach as we study this passage We can say that we must honor the price that Jesus paid for our sins by giving our lives as living and faithful sacrifices. Honor the price that Jesus paid by giving faithfully and sacrificially of yourself in every facet, in every aspect of life to the Lord. Again, the Jews said that their service to God was vanity. 
It was worthless. And this was evidenced in their lives because they gave incomplete, ungrateful tithes and sacrifices and offerings. So we must see that and we must flee from it. We must try to avoid the example of Israel that's shown in this text and look to Christ. We look to Christ as the great example of what is faithfulness in a sacrifice. We honor him by giving cheerfully and faithfully and sacrificially. And that does not just mean in our, in our monetary offerings, but that means in the whole of our lives. So let's look at the text. That's kind, of, that's kind of the big backdrop. Let's look at the text, and there's really three distinct headings in these verses. There's three distinct things that kind of build up to help us hone in on that idea. There's a rebuke, there's an exhortation, and then at the end, there is a warning. So the rebuke and the exhortation kind of go hand in hand. And then as we get to that last section, it's a warning to see what will happen to us if we do not respond to the Lord's word. So let's begin at verses 8 and 9 and look at the fraudulent robbers of God. It says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? The Lord says, In tithes and offerings. And you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, we'll come to the promises of the Lord. We, we must get to that exhortation that we see in verses 10 and following. But we're going to spend a lot of time looking at this fraudulent robbing of God because this is where we inspect our hearts. This is where we ask the Lord through his Holy Spirit to look at our lives and to reveal sin in our lives. And, and so the Lord begins with really what is a rhetorical question. Will a man rob God? It's a rhetorical question because there should be but one answer. The answer should be assumed, and it should be that, no, I will not rob God because God is the creator and the giver of everything, and so he owns all, and I hold anything that he gives me with open hands. So it's a rhetorical question because there's but one reasonable answer. There's only one answer. And it's vitally important that we understand here that the Lord owns everything. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. So, so when we think about giving to the Lord in the broad sense of giving, we must begin there. Everything belongs to the Lord, and everything really means everything. And our giving must begin with that idea fully in mind. So will a man rob God? You as a saint in Christ there sitting and thinking, no, I, I will not rob God. But what's the, what does the Lord says? He says to his people, yet you are robbing me. We'll come to the specifics of this, but I want you to just dwell on this for, for a moment. The, the Lord, the creator, and the judge of all things comes to his people and says, you are robbing me. You are defrauding me of what is rightfully mine. Now just think about that for a moment. Think about if 
you were one of these people and the Lord was pointing the finger at you saying, you are defrauding me. This should be a moment of crisis. This should be a moment of spiritual crisis where these people crumble under the weight of the idea that the Lord is utterly displeased with them. It should be a moment of accountability and deep self-examination. But is it? Is it to you? It's not to these people because we see their response. The Lord says, but you say, how have we robbed you? And as we've worked through this, I think we can understand that this is not a humble questioning of, Lord, please show me what I have done. This is the arrogant rebuffing and pushing back against the Lord, saying, Lord, what are we doing? We're giving and we're doing exactly as you say when they know that they've defrauded the Lord. Think back to Malachi chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, you also say, the Lord speaking to the people, and then the people responding, My, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery, and what is lame or sick. And so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord says, I am a great king, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So these people, on the whole, were ungrateful. They were living lives that were not pleasingly sacrificial to the Lord, and they were doing so with hardened and arrogant hearts. And I think as we always need to think about when we study the Jews in the Old Testament, it's so easy to kind of look down at them from from a higher position and, and say, how could you be so blind? How could you be so arrogant? But rather than doing that, this should point us to humbling ourselves before the Lord. Because if it were not for God's grace in your life, if it were not for the Holy Spirit living and working within you, you would be in this same position. If it were not the Lord taking the blinders off of your eyes, opening your eyes to your sin and your fleshliness and your cravings for the things of the world, you would be just like these Jews, pushing back against the holy God of all creation. So this should be a moment of humility. It should be a moment where we examine ourselves where we look to see the genuineness of our faith and the genuineness of our service to the Lord and the genuineness of those things must be measured against the truth of our our submission to the truth of God's word it's not in our emotions it's do our actions align with what holy scripture tells us So the people say, how have we robbed you? And the Lord responds rather bluntly. He responds very specifically and very bluntly. He says, you have robbed me in tithes and offerings. Now, for the sake of time, uh, we we could spend a lot of time diving into this, but we'll leave some of this for Mike when we get to 2 Corinthians 9. Uh, Just give you a, a little bit of an idea, a general understanding, so we can apply what's said here. The 
The idea of the tithe, the Reformation Study Bible, says it was ordered in the law of Moses as an annual requirement to bring one-tenth of the agricultural produce as a mark of the Lord's ownership of the promised land. You guys probably understand that. It's a giving of a tenth of what the Lord provides. That was his requirement of his people in the Old Testament. So he says tithes and offerings. Offerings, it's believed, probably point to some of the sacrificial offerings, um, specifically maybe what's outlined in Leviticus 9, verse 22, which says, Then Aaron stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. So, so there are these various offerings. And what the Lord is saying is you're defrauding me in every type of offering, in every type of tithe you are to give you are robbing and defrauding the Lord your God by not giving according to what has been specifically commanded. Now you say, okay, but, but we're not under that law, and, and praise the Lord, we're not. We're under the covenant of grace, but surely we can see how those things can be active and, and how we must battle against those things in our lives today. And if you don't see that, hang with me and we'll, we'll look at it right now. Do you defraud the Lord by being less than generous in your financial giving? Just think about that, okay? We're, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about financial giving today. But do you defraud the Lord by being less than generous? You say, well, how do I measure my generosity? Well, I can't really tell you that. I can tell you that if you give much less to the Lord's work and the Lord's church and you spend on frivolous things in your life, then you're probably not being generous. But that's for you to go home and deal with. Ask the Lord, would he have you to give more? Would he have you to give much more to support the work of the gospel here and abroad? But to hone in even a little bit more, Think about Romans 12, verse 1. I've alluded to that a few times already. Romans 12, verse 1. Paul writes, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So we're talking about sacrifices. We're talking about offerings. Do you defraud the Lord in this area of giving of your life as a holy and pleasing and acceptable offering. How do we do that? How could you defraud the Lord in that? Well, Paul's next words are an exhortation that can help us examine. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you defraud the Lord when you are conformed to the world. He says, give of yourself as a holy and pleasing sacrifice and do not be conformed to the world. So I ask you the question, are you robbing God because you allow yourself to be conformed to the world around you? Do you defraud the Lord by not giving the best of your life to him? The best of your time, the best of your energy, the best of your mind. That is what the Lord deserves. You give all that you can give until you're on empty, and then you trust the Lord to fill you back up. That is what the Lord asks of his people. 
And it's not too much to ask because one, God is God and we are not. And two, that's exactly what Christ did for us. He gave everything. He didn't say, I'm tired, I can't go to the cross today, maybe tomorrow. He took up his cross. He bore your sin and his body on the tree so that you could die to sin and live in righteousness. Do you defraud the Lord by withholding of yourself, withholding the best that you can give, and the best is the best of everything? Dear friends, the Lord takes that seriously. The implications here are so broad. If we wanted to go through and each of us pick out in our lives how, how we might fail in this, We'd be here all day, all night, probably all week, and for weeks upon end. So rather than that, I challenge you by the scriptures to go and examine your own life. Go and examine your own heart and see where you may fall short of this. It's a scary thing because when you're called to give it all to the Lord, you can be guaranteed that you are missing the mark. But remember that the Lord sees the heart. You may put on a good show. You may be able to fool those around you. But as the Lord did with Israel, so too does he do with you. He sees and knows your heart. So be like the psalmist in Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and if there be any hurtful way, any grievous way, any sinful way in me, lead me in the everlasting way. What is the everlasting way? It's the way of repentance. Go to the Lord with that heart. Ask Him to search you and to know you and to reveal to you where you fall short. And if you do that, with sincerity and with earnestness, the Lord will do so. He will be gracious, he will crush you, and he will break you, and he will lead you to repentance, and he will build you back up. If you don't do that, look at verse 9. That's why we dwell on this, because look at verse 9. The Lord says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. It's interesting that the Lord really cursed the work of the people here. He sent plagues upon them to curse the produce of their land, to destroy their crops, the very crops that they used to defraud the Lord. So we need to take heed. We need to hear the seriousness with which the Lord deals with those who defraud him. Galatians 6 verses 7 and 9 says, Do not be deceived because God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. If one sows to his own flesh, he will from the flesh reap corruption. But if he sows to the Spirit, he will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The Lord cursed, listen to this, the Lord cursed that which the people used to profane his name. The Lord cursed that which the people held back and used to defraud the Lord. 
what do we give to the Lord? We give him our lives. And so if the Lord is to deal the same way with us that he dealt with Israel, and the Lord is the same, he does not change forever and ever, so he will deal the same with us. If we defraud the Lord, then he will curse. He will bring judgment. He will curse our lives now, perhaps, but assuredly for eternity if we defraud the Lord and remain in unrepentance. And if that has not moved you enough, remember the words of Hebrews chapter 10, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this is the fraudulent robbers, the fraudulent robbing of God, but moving forward to verses 10 through 12, we also see the faithful promises of God. And so this is where we move from the rebuke to the encouragement, from the rebuke to the exhortation. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. And see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you blessing until it overflows. And then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes. And all the nations will call you blessed and you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Well, let me assure you, this is not the prosperity gospel that is so prevalent in our day where you name it and claim it, where you sow a faith seed and then the Lord is somehow dictated and controlled by what seed you sow to give you a specific blessing. No, this is the Lord who is in the heavens deciding to call his people to something specific. This is a specific promise to a specific people in a specific time and point of history. So does the Lord bless our obedience? Yes, of course he does. Scripture is clear about that. First Peter says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. The Lord blesses obedience. But do we dictate when and how and how much the Lord blesses us? The answer to that is absolutely not. The Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. He is in the heavens, and he does what he pleases. And so it's interesting what the Lord does here. He, he tells his people, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. So obviously they were holding back that which the Lord required. He said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and test me. Test me and see if I won't be faithful to provide for you. Test me and see if I won't pour out blessing from the heavens until your storehouses overflow with the goods and the produce that you need to live. The kindness and the faithfulness of the Lord in this is, is really extraordinary. Again, consider what the people are doing. They're defrauding and robbing the Lord, and rather than just smiting them with a curse, in his compassion... And in his grace, he says, here's what you do. Obey these words and see if I will not be faithful. Remember, he has just told them a few verses earlier in chapter 3 that he is the Lord and he does not change. So he says, test me now in this. See if I will or will not be faithful. Dear friends, how much, how many ways should we seek to apply this? We do trust in the Lord for provision. 
And that means literally for our provision, for the, the jobs that we have, for the money that we have to buy groceries, to put food on the table, to have homes to live in. We trust the Lord for all that. But this can stretch so much further, the trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. Do you trust the Lord's faithfulness to answer your prayers? The Lord says, be anxious for nothing but in everything in prayer and supplication, make your needs made known to the Lord. When difficulties arise, remember, dear friend, the Lord has always, always been faithful. And you must be faithful then to him in things like casting your anxieties upon him. You must be faithful in prayer. You must pray with faith and trust and hope that the Lord will hear and answer your prayers because that's what the Lord does. That doesn't always mean that things are going to work out exactly how we hope and exactly how we pray for, but it does mean that's how we must pray. We must trust God to be faithful. give you this question that you can kind of consider how it might apply in your own life, but how might you bring the whole tithe into the storehouse in your own life? Surely that can apply to your giving, again, to the church, but, but in your life as a whole. How might you trust the Lord and, and bring and give the entire sacrifice and the entire offering to Him that He requires? Again, search and examine your own heart and your own life and, and allow the Lord to lead you in the ways that he chooses to do so. And so the Lord's promise continues. He says, I will give you a blessing until it overflows. And in verse 11, then I will rebuke the devourer so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes. So in the Lord's day, the Lord would say, in Malachi's day, the Lord would send judgment or he would allow hardship to come by means of harvest-destroying locusts. That was kind of one of the choice methods of the Lord to punish his people or to allow hardship to come upon a land. In the book of Joel, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, we see that what the gnawing lo locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten, eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. So it's just this step-by-step-by-step by step by step destruction of the produce of the land. It's hardship coming upon the people. And there's a promise in Joel chapter 2 that's really similar, kind of a parallel to Malachi chapter 3. Joel chapter 2, verse 25 through 27. The Lord says, I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You will have plenty to eat, and you will be satisfied, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. Those are displays of God's faithfulness. And when we see the Lord's calling for us to to trust and to test him, to, to trust in his faithfulness, we must respond. We must give fully of ourselves to the Lord and to his causes. We know, dear friends, 
Some of you know this all too well and all too intimately. That physical blessing does not always come. But friends, hear me. The faithfulness of the Lord endures to all generations. So you lay it all on the line. You trust God. You give of yourself until there's no more to give. And then you remember His faithfulness endures to all generations. His mercies are new every morning. His grace is sufficient. His power is perfected in your weakness. And so you be faithful. You stand firm. And you remain. We have the ultimate reminder of the Lord's loving kindness in our redemption. What more do you need to see the loving kindnesses of the Lord than to look to the cross? If you wonder if the Lord will provide, if you wonder if the Lord will be faithful, look no further than the blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord continues in verse 12, All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land. This should be our work as followers of Christ, to display and to make known the blessing of God. All the nations will call you blessed because of the outpouring and the overflowing of God's blessing to you. Do the people around you call you blessed because they see the joy of the Lord that's in you that cannot be taken away by any trial or any storm? Or do they look at you and think that you're just like the next guy on, down the street, that trial and storm can come and take away your joy and, and can cause you to fall on your face and, and to be ruined and undone? Live as one who is blessed abundantly by the Lord. Walk in joy, not because circumstances are always perfect, but because eternity will be perfect. You, know, you see the, the phrase at the end here, you shall be a delightful land. Now, I think especially maybe for us men, but, but for you ladies and, and children as well, when's the last time that somebody looked at you and honestly said, You're, you are a delight to be around? Because this is what the nation said or would say of God's people. They are a delightful land. They are blessed and they are joyful and they are a joy to be around. Are you a delightful person because of the blessing of the Lord in your life? We must be proclaimers and displayers of the Lord's faithfulness and and we, we could stop there. Um, the text lends itself, I think, to keep on going. And so we're going to press on a little bit further and look at verses 13 through 15 and consider the arrogant testing of God, th this response. So we've said that there's a rebuke and there's an encouragement. And then what we really see here is that there is a warning. There's a warning for what will come upon us if we don't heed this instruction of God. So look at verse 13 and following. The Lord says, Your words have been arrogant against me. Yet you say, What have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his charge, that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? 
So now the people conclude in verse 15, we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Dear friends, this is a terrifying response. This is a terrifying arrogance and hardness of heart that some of these people who are among the Jews, among God's people, that they respond to the Lord's instruction with. Their hearts are hardened, and they feign an ignorance. They say, what have we spoken against you? Well, it becomes very clear in verses 14 and 15. So, so let's look there for a moment. The Lord says, you have said it is vain to serve God. Now, dear friend, we can all agree that only a fool, only one who is lost and does not know the Lord Jesus Christ could ever come to this conclusion, to say that serving the Lord is vanity and useless. We may doubt the Lord at times. Our, our faith may waver, it may struggle, it may be weak. But this arrogance is striking, that they would conclude that it is vain serve the Lord. Let me warn you, if that is your heart, you are partaking of the hardness of heart that we have seen throughout the text. And the Lord will strike you with a curse. You will be under his judgment if the conclusion of your life is that it's vanity to serve the Lord. Because if you're in Christ, you cannot reach that conclusion. How might it be vanity to serve the only one who is worthy to be served? How might it be vanity to give honor and devotion to the one who displayed his love for us by sending his son to die on a cross to take away the punishment for our sins? How might it be vanity to serve the one before whom angels fall and lay their crowns at his feet? How is that vanity? It's vanity when your father is the devil. But when your father is the most high, there is no greater honor, there is no greater joy and privilege in life than taking up and joining in that everlasting chorus and praising the Lord. The people continue on. It's vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge and walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Dear friends, we can all say together, we do not obey the Lord to profit. We do not obey the Lord because he promises some blessing to us. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you keep my commandments. The motivation of obedience is love. It's what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So what's the motivation of your obedience? Do you obey because you want some blessing out of that obedience? Or do you obey because you love the Lord and you desire for Him to be glorified? The wicked obey to profit. The pure in heart obey because they love the Lord and see that he is worthy of all that we can give. And so what was the resolve of these people in their anger? Verse 15, they say, so now we call the arrogant blessed. It's blasphemy. 
So what that is, that is blasphemy to call those who stand in error against the Lord to be blessed. To be blessed of God because it is only through God that blessing comes. And they say, we call those who are arrogant against you, Lord, we call them blessed. We see that your blessing is upon them. That is blasphemy. They see temporal prosperity and their minds and their hearts are just turned and, and, and they're just overcome with evil. Ours must be an eternal mindset. Ours must be an eternal vision because ours is an eternal reward. We must look beyond the horizon and look to eternity because evil people might prosper in this life, but there comes a judgment. And on that day of judgment, we stand washed in the blood of Christ. And they stand on their own merit and the Lord says, depart from me. I never knew you. You were cast into the lake fire. It's where the people go, continuing on. They say, not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Dear friends, that is, again, blasphemous. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The wicked, the unrighteous, the Doers of wickedness are not built up. They do not test God and escape. They might prosper in this life, but they face eternal condemnation. The Jews here, they saw the prosperity of the wicked and they were jealous. They wanted to experience that earthly prosperity. And really, the only response we should have to seeing the wicked prosper is pity. Because they prosper in this life But for all eternity, they're going to burn if they don't repent and come to Christ. So these arrogant people, they test the Lord. They see the prosperity of the wicked and the passing suffering of the saint. And they determine that it's vanity to serve God. What a sad state of heart. To, to look around and see all those who are living in just momentary prosperity. And rather than staying or, or knowing or walking in the blessings of eternity, these people look and they say, no, I want that. I, I want this 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 100 years of prosperity, and I'll take it all at the cost of throwing away my eternity. May we never be like this. May we realize that Christ purchased us for eternity. He didn't purchase us so that we could be happy and healthy and wealthy for a hundred years. He gave his life so that we would be his forever. Friends, forever starts now. Forever starts today. The rest of forever begins right now. Christ gave his life so that you would be his now and for all eternity. So the question is, does your life reflect that? We must walk with Christ. We must live for Christ. And if we do so in the future, there is laid up for you a crown of righteousness. And it's a glorious and an unfading 
and an imperishable crown. So dear friends, may we run with endurance. May we remain steadfast. May we strive forward to reach the prize. May we pursue all of this together, walking by the Spirit, with our eyes fixed not on the present, not on earthly blessing, but on the glory of God. May we look to Christ and desire and live for making His name great, making His glory known. And we do that by walking in the Spirit and giving sacrificially of our lives as a spiritual act and service of worship to the Lord. Honor the price Jesus paid for your soul. You honor that price by giving of yourself, picking up your cross, dying daily to yourself in order to follow your Savior. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come now and we do ask that you would write your word upon our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would be humbled and that we would that we would hear your word and apply it. Pray that we would not desire the prosperity of the world, but that we would see the eternal good to which you call us. And we see the price paid for our redemption and glory in the cross. Lord, I pray that all that we say and all that we do for the rest of this Lord's day would bring honor and glory to you. I pray that we would give our lives as a pleasing and holy and acceptable sacrifice. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.